Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Hello, and welcome to The Credit Edge, a weekly markets podcast. My name is Olivia Raimonde, and I'm a corporate finance reporter here at Bloomberg News. This week, we are extremely pleased to have Paula Selvison back on the show with us. She covers leverage finance and private credit for Bloomberg News in New York. How are you doing, Paula? I'm doing good. Glad to be here. Glad to have you on. We're also delighted to chat with Jody Lurie later on in the show. She looks at the leisure sector for Bloomberg Intelligence in New York. We'll be coming back to Jody a bit later in the show, so please do stay with us. But first, back with Paula with Bloomberg News. Paula, August is typically a quiet month for sales in um, the U.S. corporate finance markets, and it, uh, it's common for us to look forward into September. And it looks like this is going to be a pretty active month, specifically for mergers and acquisitions. Could you walk us through sort of the dynamic that's playing out there in the markets? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So right now, there is more than $15 billion of committed debt financing for leverage buyouts. Now, let's break down what that means. So a lot of times when one company or private equity firm buys another company, they fund part of that acquisition with debt financing. Investment banks, like the big ones, think JP Morgan, Citi, et cetera, they will provide essentially temporary bridge financing that they commit to, And then the intention, though, is to sell that debt financing to outside institutional investors in the form of junk bonds and leveraged loans before the deal closes. Um, So right now, what we're looking at is a a small but growing pipeline there. I mean, $15 billion wasn't big a few years ago, but it is a recovery after some uh, issues when rates rose last year for the banks where they lost a, a lot of money on these types of transactions. So yeah, so basically there's a lot that could basically launch first thing in September once uh, the market comes back to life, once uh, some bankers come back from the Hamptons and we're all back at our desks in uh, uh, after Labor Day. Awesome. And yes, you mentioned some trouble for the banks last year. For our listeners new to leverage finance, um, the banks got themselves in a little bit of a conundrum when it came to um, underwriting merger and acquisition deals. Could you just give us a quick recap so our, our listeners know sort of where the banks are coming from? Yeah. So when banks provide committed bridge financing for leverage finance transactions, they actually also provide a maximum interest rate on that debt. So essentially they tell, let's say the private equity firm, you know, we hope to sell this at, let's say 8%, um, but maximum this will cost 10% for the company. Um, This is based off of current rates. And so when the Fed rapidly increased interest rates to combat inflation, 
basically banks just were on the other side of that and got really burned. All of a sudden, the market levels for selling that debt was well above the maximum interest rate levels that they promised these companies. So that meant if the banks wanted to get the debt off their balance sheets, they had to sell it at a discounted price so that the all-in yield would be higher. And they were on the hook for that difference. And in some cases, they lost billions of dollars as a group on some of these transactions. In fact, some of this debt is still stuck on their balance sheets. Um, For example, Twitter, that's about $13 billion of debt. No sign of them selling that anytime soon. And also for a company called Brightspeed. Um, But they were able to sell most of the debt that got stuck, which opened their balance sheets back up to to do more deals. And the key thing for banks is they don't want to hold this debt, right? They do this as a temporary commitment and they make fees off of it. Then they recycle their balance sheet into the next deal. And that process has finally restarted in recent months. And that's why we have this pipeline going into the fall. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you. And if I'm correct, I think we have a couple of acquisitions in the market, some familiar names, Simon and Schuster, um, the publisher, a handful of others. Can you, um, you know, walk us through some of the big names that you're going to be looking for next week? Yeah, so I think one of the more notable ones is Simon & Schuster, just because it's such a household name. So this is the book publishing company. Um, So their old owner, Paramount Global, so that's the home of like CBS and some of the big, you know, broadcast brands. Paramount Global actually has owned Simon & Schuster. And so they are now selling it to a really major KKR, uh, to a really major private equity firm called KKR for about $1.6 billion dollars. As part of the financing, KKR is doing this in the form of a leveraged buyout. So there's also roughly $1 billion of debt financing provided by a group of banks led by Jefferies. And so that could come, you know, essentially whenever they think the market is ready to handle it. Um, in, you know, leveraged finance world, $1 billion of debt isn't actually that big. And so the biggest transaction we're waiting for is uh, this uh private equity firm called GTCR is buying a majority stake in a payments firm called WorldPay. And that has more than $8 billion of debt in the form of junk bonds and leveraged loans. This is a pretty chunky deal. We haven't seen deals of this size in quite a while. So it'll be interesting to see you know, the test of the depths of the market to see if people are willing to invest that much money. So far, it looks like debt investors probably will be very receptive to it because they're hungry for new deals. Because the leverage buyout machine essentially got gummed up for about a year, they haven't had like the new paper, the new money for them to invest in. And so they're looking for new deals so that they can put money to work. And and you're talking to investors all the time. Um, A lot of the sources that I speak to this year, they continue to talk to me about this up in quality trade. They want to be investing in higher quality credits, whether that's investment grade or maybe the higher end of the, the junk bond and the leverage loan space. But when we look at leverage buyouts, they aren't always the safest bets. So could you walk us through sort of what investors are thinking about in terms of risk taking on these deals? Yeah, so it's really interesting. So while the market has reopened, it's definitely been for safer companies in general, right? So your double Bs, higher rated single Bs, you know, lower rated single Bs, and especially triple C rated debt is still fairly a no man's land. Most people just don't want to touch it or deal with it because of the risks. 
Um, and so what we've seen with some of these leveraged buyouts, it's hard to speak to specific ones, but broadly the color we've heard is that leverage is down, right? So if maybe a deal would have been levered around six times last year, it's now more around five times or 4.5 times. Um, and that also reflects the hiring borrowing costs because, you know, the companies can only support so much debt if the interest rates are higher. Um, so investors, you know, they're going to see this new crop of LBOs that should be lower levered. Um, investors might be able to fight for better covenants now since, you know, they can get those investor protections again since it's been more of a, a debt buyer's market than a debt seller's market. Um, but yeah, in general, investors are still looking for higher quality names and, you know, they're still afraid there could be a recession, right? So, you know, even though it seems like some of those predictions were early or, uh, you know, overblown, there still could be a recession at some point in the coming quarters. So investors want companies that are recession resistant, that still do well during the bad part of cycles. And they're also hyper aware that borrowing costs are higher. So they don't want to lever companies up too high and then have to deal with a restructuring in a few years. Got it. So it sounds like they are putting less debt onto these companies compared to the equity than maybe they did a few years ago. Is that right? Yeah, so sponsors across the board do seem like they've now had to come down on the leverage levels when they do buy other companies. Got it. And circling back to the banks and what they went through last year, I know that you know mergers and acquisitions, leverage buyouts are, are sort of the engine of this market. But after losing billions of dollars, you know, it, why is Wall Street coming back now? Why, why do they want to do these deals now? Because these deals make them a lot of money. <laughs> um, because basically, the way investment banking works in this part of the market is the banks want to constantly have a churn of leveraged buyout transactions because they can make a fee of two points or three points. You know, if, if you make a fee of 3% on billions of dollars, that adds up really fast. So they took their losses, they dealt with it. These losses were painful, but nothing like the financial crisis, right? They were bad year and now they've moved on and they're ready to make money again off this business. And in general, um, what we've heard across the board is that because rates rose and because for a period of time it was harder to get debt financing, banks were able to get better terms for themselves, right? So their current maximum interest rates are now once again based off of the current market levels, which are much higher than they were before the Fed started this process. So, you know, Overall color I've heard is also that the what are called flex and caps, which is essentially the way they do the maximum interest rates, that those are just higher. They're more favorable for the banks. Um, and so they should be able to do this more safely for them, hopefully for them. Um, but that being said, this isn't in a vacuum, right? Because the banks are competing against each other for these deals, and they're also competing against private credit lenders. And so private credit lenders, this other asset class, where instead of doing a temporary financing, they just come in and, and borrow the money sometimes with just a few firms for billions of dollars of debt, you know, they can offer more flexible terms to sponsors. And they can also, typically their pricing is higher than the, you know, hoped for rate that the banks are doing, but it can be neck and neck, right? They're competing, they're trying to undercut each other on price, on other terms, on protections. So if banks stay out of the market, they're just going to keep losing market share to private credit. So they got to get back in now. 
That's super interesting. It seems like everything is owned by private markets these days. I'm glad that you mentioned private credit because it's a really important um, asset class in the in the credit space. It's just grown um, extremely large in size. But but why would a company want to go to private credit? Like why not just stick with you know a, a big bank with, with, that has a familiar name? That's a great question. So there's a lot of different pros and cons. Um, so if you do the public markets, so high yield bonds, leverage loans, and again, we say public in a relative sense. These aren't, you know, like equities, but they're relatively public because so many people buy them. Um, you know, with high yield bonds and leverage loans, typically the borrowing costs are cheaper than private credit, but you have to do the debt commitments. And then at some point in the future, sometimes months later, you then sell the junk bonds and leverage loans. And, you know, yields can change in that period of time. Market conditions can change. So why people like private credit is even though it can be more expensive, um, you just kind of get it all done at once. You know, there's this certainty of execution, as a lot of people in the market like to say, um, where you can just go to a few lenders and they say, okay, we did the deal, it's done, right? There's no headaches of, you know, 50, 60, 100 investors having differing opinions on your company and you don't have to worry about it. And then the other thing is that private credit lenders can also provide you know, different kinds of flexibility on the terms. So one of the biggest ones is they can provide what's called pick or payment in kind. So if let's say you lever up a company with a lot of debt and you think it's gonna grow into this debt load, but in the meantime, you're a little bit worried about liquidity or just the actual interest costs of cash leaving the business to investors every year, you can do a pick. So that means instead of paying your interest in cash, you pay it in more debt that only comes due at the end when it matures. So there's just some you know, flexibility. It's more bespoke. It's just more like contracts between some parties. So that's kind of the difference. You know, Banks, it's going to be cheaper if the banks sell it to institutional asset managers, but it's a more specific way it has to be done. Whereas private credit lenders, they're more expensive, but you have the certainty of execution and more flexibility. Thank you for walking us through that. And we're going to turn to Jody Lurie at Bloomberg Intelligence shortly. But before we do, Paula, I know private credit is an asset class that you follow very closely. What what are the big things, you know, what are you watching there? What's what's the next big thing for investors and people curious about this space to, to look out for in the fall? Yeah, so I think a really interesting dynamic is right now we've been talking about new deals, right? Leverage buyouts, new transactions, but there's a lot of leverage loans and high yield bonds that are outstanding and need to be refinanced soon. It's not like a cliff. A lot of it's already been dealt with, but there is a good chunk of, the, of this debt that still does need to be refinanced in the next one to two years. And it's harder to do that in the broadly syndicated markets, and it's also more expensive. And so I think we're going to keep seeing a trend of private credit lenders stepping in to refinance leverage loans and high-yield bonds, especially leverage loans, because they're very similar structure. And so we've seen a couple really big examples of that recently. One was the Finastra example, which is currently the largest private credit deal ever at more than $5 billion of total size. And then we're also now seeing a group of private credit lenders refinance the leverage loans for a company called Highland Software. So we do expect to see more examples of refinancing happen, which means that the leverage loan market especially could shrink some. That's super interesting. Great stuff from Paula Selgeson at Bloomberg News. Thank you so much for joining us, Paula. Thanks for having me. Anytime. And you can read all of Paula's scoops on the Bloomberg Terminal and, of course, at Bloomberg.com. Please do check out her coverage.
So as I mentioned earlier, we are delighted to welcome Jody Lurie on the Credit Edge podcast this week. Jody covers the leisure sector for Bloomberg Intelligence based here in New York. How's it going, Jody? It's going great, Olivia. You cover a lot of companies, but as the summer comes to a close, I want to take a special look at theme parks and the cruise lines. Um, There's been a lot of activity there and a lot to sort of dive into. Can you talk sort of high level, you know, where does the leisure sector go from here? Sure. So I think the leisure sector is definitely one of the most interesting ones, in my opinion, I'm a little biased, um, this year, just from the standpoint that I think consumers have really uh, outdone themselves in terms of uh, participating in the leisure space and in different areas of leisure, um, different areas than we saw a year ago. You know, people are getting a little bit more international in their reach. Um, they want to go and do, they don't want to be stuck inside. And so even though there's discussion of possibly a pullback economically, we're not yet seeing that prove out in the leisure space in general. That said, we are starting to see pockets of moderation, normalization from these post-pandemic highs of certain parts of the leisure space. Got it, for sure. And can you talk a little bit about some of like the major forces that are driving your outlook for the theme parks? So I think the theme parks are a bit interesting in and of themselves because they mostly shut down during the pandemic, but found ways to still stay relevant in terms of food and beverage events and and, and any area to stay open, which compares to the cruise lines that had to fully stop. Um, they are now... They, they were able to transition out of the pandemic a little bit quicker as a result. And last year had very strong years in terms of season pass rates, in terms of uh, just people going and visiting the theme parks and, and doing because it's a nice, nice, easy experience that you can do once, you know, once every month or every week. Now, this year, we're seeing that there's a bit of a pullback. And part of that, interestingly, is because of things like weather, which obviously we can't plan for weather, but it's definitely creating a little bit of a wrinkle in their plan and showing the sensitivity that they have as compared to other parts of the leisure space this year as people sort of look elsewhere to spend their time and spend their leisure. Interesting. So so where else are you seeing that? Where is the consumer going right now? What, what are you seeing as their preference? The biggest areas that have been really growing this year has been international travel, which has really not returned to pre-pandemic levels yet. Uh, business and conference travel is, of course, improving as well. That's a little bit slower and that's not so much leisure, although there is that element of leisure, which is business and leisure blended. So you go to a conference and you, or you go on a business trip and you extend it by a few days for, for leisure travel. That said, I mean, I think, you know, cruise lines are a great example of an alternative of where people are spending their time because they can book, they booked it in advance. They want to go and do something that's a little bit more exotic than going to your regional theme park. That said, something like a SeaWorld is benefiting a little bit more than a Six Flags and a, a Cedar Fair from the standpoint that they have that Southern California, Florida focus, but that doesn't completely keep them 
unexposed to some of the trends in, in, in theme parks, namely weather. And you're seeing that for all three of these major companies is that they're really actually being affected by the fact that the first and second quarter were not very kind to them in terms of heat, in terms of monsoons. Now we have the hurricane season coming up and and these companies with more of a global reach like the cruise lines can sort of manage through some of these difficulties. And obviously a cruise ship, if, if the weather is not good in one place, you can sort of move to another. Not always, but um, you can you can reroute it a little bit. You can't do that when you have giant roller coasters. Yeah, absolutely. I guess an important thing to think about is that the theme parks are rooted in one spot, that they're not moving physically, whereas consumers can go to different locations that have a desirable location and destination for the weather and the crews can take them there um, anytime during the year. But, you know, Jody, and I know you know this so well before our listeners, the cruise lines had a really tough time in 2020 um, when the pandemic shut down all of their operations, and they really needed to rely on the debt markets. For somebody who isn't um, as clued in as you to this space, could you just walk us through kind of what that sector has been going through over the past couple of years? So I think that's a great question, Olivia, because you have to remember that this moratorium that they went through, which was basically they had to completely shut down all of their operations. Um, during a good portion of the pandemic, it, it really set them back, particularly compared to other parts of the leisure space. They're about a year or so behind from a, in this transition period in the post-pandemic era. They're now finally this year starting to see more normal levels of activity, whereas if you look at other parts of the leisure space, they got the benefit of that a year, year and a half ago as people started going and doing that said, I think what's what's happening with the cruise lines is they're they're pleasantly surprised by how quickly pe- people are starting to jump into cruising. Um, we're seeing advanced booking rates much higher, which means that cash flows are getting better. We're seeing revenue also getting booked because people are actually cruising, so they can actually book that advanced bookings as revenue. And you're starting to see any of these band-aids that they put on, like these future cruise credits that they gave people during the pandemic, you're seeing those roll off. So from a, a balance sheet perspective, they're still not in great shape, but they're improving and you're starting to see a light at the end of the tunnel. Might be a few years out, but the companies are talking about how they want to get back to investment grade territory, how they want to improve their balance sheet, bring down their debt loads relatively quickly or as quickly as they can and using cash flows to do so. And you bring up a great point with the downgrades because some of these companies were investment grade before the pandemic and subsequently were downgraded to junk when their operations you know, were shut down for such an extended period of time due to the virus. But I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the cruise lines did have an upgrade earlier this month. Is that correct? That is correct. So Royal Caribbean is is benefiting quicker than its peers in terms of upgrades. It, what's, what's happening, what you're seeing is the way that the companies manage themselves through the pandemic is it, you're starting to see that play out in, in how quickly they're turning around each quarter. Um, we've been talking about for a few quarters now about how Royal Caribbean has been about a quarter ahead of its peers in terms of turnaround. Part of that is it got its ship in the water quicker. Um, it, it, you know, it, it didn't 
completely stop its CapEx plans for its ship modifications, just the maintenance CapEx, the same way that Carnival did. Carnival really pulled back a lot. And so they they have to dedicate a little bit more cash this year to CapEx to sort of get all their ships in order. They also have a larger fleet than, than Royal Caribbean. Um, there's some complicating factors to that that you know made Royal a little bit more nimble than Car- Carnival as we get into this transition period. That said, you are seeing that, that the rating agencies are, are, are looking at these companies a little bit more with a positive tone, but I think hesitantly because they know that there's still a lot of hurdles that all of them have to cross and they probably will continue to do so. They don't want to, they don't want to penalize them for what these companies have gone through. They want, but they want to make sure that the companies are in good working order before they start kind of moving up their ratings. And I think that we'll probably see investors respond quicker to the company's turnaround stories than the raters might. I'm I'm glad you mentioned the investors, Jody, because there are a lot of opportunities um, not only to make investments around these upgrades and downgrades, rising stars, falling angels, but we've seen a lot of various outperformance in the leisure sector. Um, Can you talk to me about some of the areas that have stood out to you this year in terms of outperformance and where you're sort of seeing, you know, that trend continue? Yeah, so I mean, I think I think the whole leisure space in general has done has performed relatively well in comparison on a relative basis compared to other parts of the uh, credit space or consumer discretionary space. I mean, you know, I, I, I like to do things with my colleague, Mike Campalone, about leisure versus retail, right? So he covers the retail space. And that's been an interesting one in a different way in terms of how consumers are spending or not spending there. And, um, and I think what we're what we're seeing is up until this year, much of the leisure space was starting to was moving very much in tandem in that a lot of the companies were affected negatively by the pandemic. And so their bonds were much wider then they were trading much wider than a lot of other areas of either consumer discretionary and also other parts of the credit space in general. Now we're starting to see tightening. We're starting to see companies benefit from their own personal policies. Case in point, now we're not talking about the gaming space, but um, Las Vegas Sands was downgraded to high yield. They've start, they finally bumped back up to investment grade as they work towards improving their balance sheet as they work towards this post-pandemic era of, of being a better company than they were during the pandemic. And so I think that, that we are seeing companies getting back into shape, some quicker than others, you know, a McDonald's and a Starbucks, which is, mind you, restaurants, a little bit different of an of a area, but we cover that as well. They, they were much quicker to get their balance sheets in check than some of the other areas of leisure and, 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 um, and other related areas. And so we are starting to see a differentiation between companies, but I, but we've been of the opinion that we think we'll start seeing that from the standpoint of, for instance, the cruise lines are, are, are focused on improving their balance sheets, whereas the theme parks are sort of getting past that point and are starting to deal, deal with the hairiness of their own individual sector. Hairiness of their own individual sector. That makes a lot of sense. Um, one company that I've seen you write about that I think a lot of our listeners will be familiar with is Six Flags. Can you talk to us, talk to me a little bit about what's going on with that company? 
Sure, and and I hope you don't envision hairiness on on the roller coasters or you know, envision somebody's toupee flying off as they ride it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think I think for a company like Six Flags, it's a little complicated because management really wants to get their leverage down. They have they have similar le- net leverage targets to their peer of three three to four times. Uh, SeaWorld was the quickest to get it down to three times and actually below three times. Uh, Cedar Fair is nearing that level and Six Flags is a little bit above. And they, you know, Six Flags, it's a complicated company because they have a long history of some challenges from a credit perspective, Um, but obviously a very different company now than they were. Uh, They're just much larger than their peers, like SeaWorld. So there are some comparisons between the two. They've had some management changes over recent years. And I think that that what they're trying to do is be good stewards of their balance sheet as much as they can within the constraints that they have. So they're trying to reinvent how they do things, pushing season passes similar to, to Cedar Fair and SeaWorld to have that reoccurring revenue. But what they're finding is by pushing season passes, they're losing out on additional dollars per customer and necessarily because you're not charging for the single pass. The benefit you get is you have more deferred revenue. You have more of a idea of what your cash flows could be, your consistent cash flows. And so it's sort of a mixed bag and they've been playing around with their food options and they've been playing around with a bunch of different things that have that have affected their cash flow kind of negatively. So they're still very much in a transition period. They've been active in the credit markets this year as, as, as much as they can be to sort of address their near return debt and anything that seems attractive. But the interest rate environment doesn't make it as easy for them um, to, to refinance debt as, as I think they would like. Certainly not. Yes, interest costs uh, are higher for, for almost uh, everyone, um, except maybe if you're thinking about some of the, the double digit coupons that the cruise lines had to pay um, at the start of the pandemic. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, <laughs> Although we did see a return of the double cruise line debt, um, unfortunately. Yes, yes. I think they're going to be paying um, high costs for a while. You know, speaking of, you know, how these companies are doing, we're talking a lot about their outperformance this year and how they're sort of, you know, regaining their footing after, you know, so much upheaval for the pandemic. But can you talk to me about what some of these companies' goals are, you know, as it relates to their business and to their credit and, you know, how attainable those might be looking ahead into 2024? Sure. So I think from a goal standpoint, the companies have made it pretty clear that obviously they want operations to be very strong. You know, they want to increase their their occupancy levels as well as their advanced bookings and and all those sort of pieces that are important, you know, taking in new, new vessels and having the financing for it. But part and parcel to that is the focus on cash flows and debt repayment. They're not necessarily thinking about their shareholders at the moment, which in my opinion, it's a very good thing that they're not uh, because they are way, 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 way um, too uh, early in the game to, to be thinking along those lines. Um, that said, I mean, I think as you as you look at 2024, I think you could probably see a few more ratings upgrades provided they continue on this path. They don't get waylaid by some unforeseen event like a pandemic. Um, and, and, and you might end up seeing a few ratings upgrades. However, I don't know if you would necessarily see investment grade until 2025 or 26 for some of the names. And, and I think that that's more attainable, that's possible, but it's 
definitely encouraging and and one of those stories that I think a lot of investors like to hear because there's fewer and fewer of those at the moment in terms of these turnaround plays that investors are looking for. Absolutely. Yes. The upgrade story and the, you know, reaching for that rising star going from junk to investment grade is definitely going to be something that we're all going to be watching very closely. Um, That was Jody Lurie, everyone. Uh, Thank you very much, Jody. Um, Jody Lurie of Bloomberg Intelligence. You can read all of her great analysis on the Bloomberg Terminal. Please do check it out. And Jody, hope to see you back on the show again soon. Thank you. And thanks again to Paula Selvison from Bloomberg News. You can read all of her great scoops and her coverage on the terminal and at Bloomberg.com. I'm Olivia Raimonde. It's been a pleasure having you. Please join us again next week on The Credit Edge. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.